First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we started our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians back at the beginning of the summertime. Uh, But we come today to the final verses in this letter and to the final message uh, in this series. Uh, Paul told us back in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 about our identity in Christ, uh, about who we are because of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And uh, then starting in chapter 4 of Ephesians and all the way up to where we left off last week, Paul has been telling us about how we have been made for more. Uh, how we've been saved for more. He's told us how to rely on God's power to be who we have been saved to be and to live out our new identity in Christ in every area of our lives, in the church and in our marriages and in our households and in our workplaces and in every other sphere of life. But now in these closing verses of this incredible letter, Paul wants to remind us that how we live in all of those areas of our life uh, is actually a part of something much bigger that is going on. Uh, He wants to remind us that there is a cosmic spiritual battle that is going on all around us every day that we are a part of and that we need to be spiritually prepared For that battle. Let's read about it, starting in Ephesians 6, verse 10, and we'll read down to the end of the letter. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And Father, we thank you for these beautiful words. 
at the conclusion of this amazing letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for the months that we've had as a church family to study this letter and to learn from your word. And we pray today that you would be our teacher, that you would help us to know more about this spiritual battle that we are engaged in, that you might help us, Father, to stand by your power and by your armor that you have given to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Paul is describing for us the reality of the spiritual struggle that we are uh, engaged in. Uh, I believe that in the church today and among uh, believers generally today, there is a lot of confusion uh, about this entire subject. Uh, And there are numerous errors that we can easily fall into. And studying this passage, studying other passages like it uh, in the Word of God can help to guard us against such errors. And so today I want us to think about three mistakes that uh, many make in this area of spiritual battle and the armor of God. And uh, the first mistake that so many believers make is this. We just simply forget that we are at war in the first place. If we have fallen into that kind of thinking that it is peacetime right now instead of wartime, Paul wants to disabuse us of that notion in the very first words of this passage. In verse 10, if you look with me, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know, it reminds me when I read those words to be strong in the Lord. It reminds me of the Lord said to Joshua in the Old Testament to be strong and to be courageous. And of course, the reason the Lord said that to Joshua, that he needed to be strong in the Lord, is because there were battles that he was about to have to fight. I believe the Lord tells us here to be strong in him for the very same reason, because there is a spiritual battle that is happening around us at all times. Notice though that uh, God says we are to be strong in his might, not in our might. He says we're to be strong in the Lord and not in ourselves. But again, the point is there is a battle that is taking place. That's why in verse 11 and throughout this passage, Paul writes about this spiritual armor that we need uh, to be wearing at all times. You know, you really don't need to be wearing armor if you're headed to the beach for a vacation. You really only need to be wearing armor if you're about to walk out on a battlefield. And Paul wants us to know that that is where we are every single day. That's Paul's assumption in this entire passage, it underlies every single thing that he says, that there's a spiritual battle that is happening, that the Lord wants us to stand our ground. And so again, this idea, this reality of a cosmic spiritual struggle, it's an assumption that Paul makes in this passage, but I believe that many believers today do not have that same assumption. They don't live their lives like they are engaged in a daily Battle. You know, when you're engaged in a war, when you know it's war time, you're going to live differently than if it's peacetime. I'm sure many of us studied in school about how in World War II, our entire country got involved in the war effort. Uh, we read about how food was rationed uh, in those days. 
about how people even grew victory gardens in their yard to be able to contribute to the food that was needed on the war front. We read about how with many of the men gone, women took jobs that they otherwise would not have taken in factories to make needed items. People donated their metal scraps and other materials for the weapons that needed to be manufactured. Everyone knew that we as a nation were at war and it was going to take all of us in order to be victorious. You live differently when you know you're at war. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, he said, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We've been enlisted as a soldier in the Lord's army. There is a battle going on for the souls of men and women and boys and girls all around us. And Paul says there, we cannot be so entangled in the affairs of this life that we're not seeing with spiritual eyes that every day we are standing on a battlefield. And so church, let's not make that mistake. Let's not forget that we are at war. And let's not forget that we will be at war until our conquering King Jesus comes and runs every enemy off the battlefield and brings with him a lasting and eternal peace. There's another mistake we can make that Paul addresses in this passage. We can know that we are at war perhaps, but we can be fighting the wrong war. We can be fighting against the wrong enemy. The words that Paul writes in verse 12, I believe, are so very crucial for the church to understand in our day and age in which we live. Look at it with me. Verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Again, some believers know that we're at war. They're well aware that a war is going on, but they've gotten confused about who their real enemy is. And so some believers are fighting really against our lost culture. And they're fighting against our lost culture because in their minds, they believe the problem is what these other people, these lost people are doing. The problem, they say, is what all of the liberals are doing or what all of the conservatives are doing based upon your viewpoint. The the problem, they say, is that there are certain organizations, certain anti-religious groups, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, many others come to mind who are opposing everything that is good and right and holy in the world. And it's these people who are the problem. Certainly there are many things that are happening in our lost culture that the church should oppose and stand up and speak out against as we have done on many issues. Certainly we know that our real enemy can and does work through the means of lost people and broken systems and structures and organizations But church, we cannot forget that none of those lost people are actually our real enemy. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
And what's amazing to me is that Paul is the one who is saying we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The same Paul who was beaten on many occasions by flesh and blood people. The same Paul who had other people who opposed his message falsely accuse him and imprison him. The same Paul who would eventually be martyred by people who didn't want his message to be heard. And we want to say, Paul, look at all that these people have done to you. Look at all the lashes that they have given you. Look at all the years that they have taken from you. You're in prison right now, Paul, as you write this letter because of what flesh and blood has done to you. And so how can you of all people say we do not wrestle against flesh and blood? It's because Paul understood something that many of us have forgotten. That behind the battle that we can see, there is a greater spiritual reality. And the real war is happening at a deeper level. And the real enemy is not another person, no matter how lost or misguided or blinded by Satan they may be. No, other people are not the enemy. In fact, the souls of those lost people are the battleground. They are what is being fought over by our real enemy. And their souls, just like our souls, were created by a God who loves them and a God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them. And we should never forget that. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And if we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, certainly that means our enemy is not actually our lost culture. It also means that we should not be fighting, as some believers are, against other Christians. So-called friendly fire. And yet that's what it seems that many believers today are intent on doing. I have met some professing Christians who basically never have a kind word to say about any other believer. They fancy that they have the gift of discernment. And because they do, their job in life is essentially to trash what all other believers are doing for the Lord because they're all doing it wrong. Is there a place for discernment? Absolutely there is. Is there a place for speaking out against false teaching and false teachers? Absolutely there is. We see that in the word of God. But as the people of God, we should not take delight in shooting our own wounded. Instead of shooting other believers when they are fallen and treating them like they are our enemies, we need to follow the counsel that Paul gives to us in Galatians chapter 6. He said, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so let's not fight the wrong war, church. Since Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, our real battle is not against our lost culture. It's certainly not against our fellow believers. So who does Paul say we are really battling against? Well, look again at verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says our real battle, our real enemy is Satan and his demonic army. You know, when Paul lists out 
these principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual host of wickedness. I really don't think Paul is trying to give us there a a super precise breakdown of all of the different rankings and categories uh, in the evil world, though some have speculated about that. I think Paul is simply describing for us the demonic army that is at the command of Satan. It is Satan and his wicked minions that are our real enemy. Now, Satan goes by many names in the Bible. He is at times called the devil. He is called Beelzebub. He is called the ruler of this world and the god of this age. In Revelation, he is called the dragon. He is called that serpent of old. In this passage, he is referred to as the wicked one. And he is wicked and he is evil. He opposes God. He opposes the goodness of God. He opposes the people of God, the church of God. He opposes the message of God, the gospel of God. He does not want the lost people in this world to hear that message. And therefore, he doesn't want saved people in this world to share that message. And we're not fighting him in some far off battle. As one person put it, we're not launching laser guided missiles from a drone at Satan from our safe confines far away. Now the wording that Paul uses here is is the wording of a wrestling match. One-on-one close combat. That's where we do battle with our enemy. Oftentimes in our minds and in our hearts. I know sometimes believers want to cast all of this to the side and pretend that it is not a reality. Certainly the world around us would make a mockery of this idea that we are battling against Satan. The world dresses up Satan to look like a clown in a red suit with pointy ears and horns and a little cute pitchfork. They make him look like a cartoon. And why would anyone ever be afraid of a cartoon? But according to the word of God, our enemy is not a cartoon. And he is not a superstition. And he is not a relic of a bygone age. But he is real. And he is at work right now in our world and in our lives. You know, this past week, I saw this truth in a way that I had never seen before in my life. Uh, The past week and a half or so, I spent on the other side of the world in South Asia in a major city in a slum area. And just this slum area alone has between two and three million people living in it. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. But as you begin to go into this slum area and one lane and alleyway leads to the next, and we were able to be invited into people's homes and to share the gospel with people who've never heard of Jesus and to see the Lord work in a powerful way, to see people of all different ages coming to faith in Christ, seeing churches being born and formed in these houses where two or three believers were already gathered and they invited their friends and their neighbors to come and to hear about the Lord. But on one day in particular, we went further up in the slums and further back in the slums than we had gone on any other day. And we went, came to this one house and there was a woman who greeted us and she looked as normal as you and I. And she sat there with 15 or 20 others packed in this house as we began. And as soon as we began to sing and to worship the Lord, 
And she began to manifest a evil presence and spirit. She began to wail and to shriek. She began to beat her chest violently. She began to pound upon the ground. She was thrown backwards upon the ground the entire time we were singing and worshiping until we were done. And then she was able to sit normally during much of what we shared until the very end. And each one of them would come individually and ask us to pray for different physical needs they had, relatives that they had. She was the last one to come and sit in front of us and ask us to pray. Friend Dan prayed for her. As soon as he began to pray for her in Jesus' name, she began to manifest again and shriek and cry out. She began to lunge at us as we prayed for her. The missionaries who were there told us that about a month prior to that, they believed that she had been delivered from an evil spirit. And yet what they told us is that she had not repented of her worship of idols. And she continued to bring idols, which are really demons, into her home and inviting these demons into her life. It reminded me of the story that Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 12 about when an unclean spirit leaves a man and he goes and finds seven others that are more powerful than he is and comes back and the final state of the person is actually worse than the first. It's the same story the missionaries told us. They said because she had not repented and she continued to worship idols, the demons just kept returning. And it just reminded me in in a very visible and clear way that the work of the wicked one is not just something that we read about in the Bible. It is something that is still happening in the world. You know, I, I believe Satan works in different ways in different cultures. Here in America... He doesn't use little idols of demonic elephant gods to keep us in bondage. But he uses idols nonetheless. He uses our idols of lust and greed and materialism and an unquenchable thirst for comfort and pleasure and entertainment and convenience. I believe that our culture is every bit as blind and dark as the one that I just left. It's just that we're blinded by a different set of gods. But church, let's be resolved that no matter how foolish our world may say that we are, that we will believe what the Bible clearly teaches. That we will believe that there is an unseen world of spiritual principalities and powers that are under the control of the wicked one and that they are waging war against God and against God's people. And our enemy is very good at what he does. He knows just where to fire his fiery darts because he's had all of human history to practice his aim. But with that said, I do want to make sure I say this as well. It is being aware of our enemy, that we have a real enemy. That is right and that is good. But being fixated on our enemy or being afraid of our enemy is not right and it is not good. We do not need to fear the enemy because Jesus Christ, our Savior, has already defeated him. The victory has already been won and it was won at the cross. 
And Paul tells us that in Colossians chapter 2. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so in a very real sense, the key decisive victory in this battle has already been won. It was won when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again. And if we know Christ, if we are in Christ, then we can rest assured we are already on the winning side. We know how all of this will end. And so we should not be afraid. And that's why as you read this passage, even though it's a passage about spiritual attack and battle, there's still a sense of optimism and hope that runs all the way throughout this passage. Paul tells us not that we should run away and hide. He tells us over and over in this passage that we can stand our ground and that God has given us everything we need to stand our ground and not give an inch to the enemy. Four times Paul tells us that. In verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 13, he tells us that two times. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He says it again in verse 14. Stand, therefore, stand, 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 stand. We don't have to go out and win the battle because the battle is the Lord's and it's already been won. But during this age, while we wait for the Lord's return, while Satan is flailing about like a dying animal, trying to inflict whatever damage he can cause before his final sentence is handed down, the Lord says we simply, as his church, need to take our stand. And we don't have to take our stand on our own. We don't have to do it in our own power. We just have to use the spiritual armor that he has already given us through Jesus Christ, his son. That's why really the whole rest of this passage addresses the third mistake that many believers make. We simply fail to prepare for the war that we are in. We fail to use the armor that has already been given. Notice this passage doesn't say that we need to go out and make or manufacture our own armor. This passage doesn't say we need to send off for it in the mail and wait for Amazon to deliver it to our door. This passage implies that the armor is already here. It has already been given. It is at our feet. It is in our locker. All we have to do is put it on and wear it. And so we won't spend long here, but in verses 14 through 17, Paul mentions six pieces of armor that God has given us to use. Many people have pointed out that these six pieces of armor were items that were commonly worn by Roman soldiers in Paul's day. It's quite likely that Paul did not need anybody to remind him about what a Roman soldier wore because he was probably looking at one in his prison cell as he wrote these words. But not only is he referencing what Roman soldiers wore as he wrote these words, he's also alluding to many passages in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, Isaiah wrote to us about how God himself is a mighty warrior, about how his son, the Messiah, the the Lord Jesus Christ, is a mighty warrior, how he is wearing this very same armor. And so this armor of God is the armor that God himself wears. It's the armor that Christ himself wore. 
And it has been given to us who know Christ through saving faith. The first item he mentions in verse 14 is the belt of truth. Having girded your waist with truth. Paul said in chapter 4 that the truth is in Jesus, and it is. When we abide in Christ, we remind ourselves that the truth is in Christ. We preach the gospel of Christ to ourselves each and every day. We are walking in the path of truth. And of course, that means that we want to be people of truth in our interactions and in our dealings with one another. Next, Paul mentions the breastplate of righteousness. The Romans wore a breastplate that was made of tough leather or another hard material. Of course, it guarded their hearts. It guarded their other vital organs. And the righteousness of the believer is that breastplate. Certainly, we know that we only have righteousness because Christ has given us his righteousness. But here, I think it's specifically referencing living out that righteousness in our daily life, living in right, righteous ways. And when by God's power we do that, we are guarding our hearts and we're keeping at bay the enemy who wants to gain a foothold in our lives. Next, Paul talks about what I'm calling gospel shoes. We need to have gospel shoes on our feet. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I don't know if personally you like to wear Reeboks or Nikes or Adidas or New Balance, but whatever kind of other shoes you like to wear, I hope, believer, that every day when you leave your house, you're wearing these gospel shoes. That every day you're ready, you're prepared to share the gospel of good news with those that you meet. And I love the paradox here that Paul says, even while we're in the middle of a war, we need to be ready to share about the gospel of peace at all times. About how everyone who is lost can find peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The next item is what Paul calls the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You know, Roman shields in Paul's day were not little dinky shields. They were really more like doors. They were two feet wide and four feet long. They were big enough you could hide your entire body behind them. And that's the idea, that our faith is a shield. Our faith in the promises of Christ protects us from the arrows and the attacks of the evil one. And you know, he's always trying, the enemy's always trying to attack our confidence in the word of God and in his promises. He's been doing it ever since the Garden of Eden when he said to Eve, did God really say? But our faith is our shield. The next item, Paul says, we need is the helmet of our salvation. Now, Paul is writing to those who are already believers. He's not speaking about acquiring or gaining salvation. He's speaking rather about the assurance of our salvation. As he writes to the Thessalonians, this helmet of salvation is the helmet of the hope of our salvation. And that is a place where Satan loves to attack, is it not? The assurance of our salvation. He loves to breed doubt and discouragement and I remember a time distinctly in my college years where Satan tormented me greatly with such doubts about where I stood with the Lord. I know many other believers who've experienced similar times in their life. We have to put the helmet on, as one person said, and not let Satan mess with our heads. Jesus told us in John chapter 10 that we are in the palm of his hand. 
and that Satan cannot pluck us from the palm of his hand. God will not lose one single true believer in Jesus Christ. The sixth and final piece of armor he mentions in verse 17 is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God has put in our hands a weapon that is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's, it's stronger, by the way, than any weapon that our adversary possesses. And we can use the sword of the word of God for defense. It's how Jesus used it when he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And he responded to every temptation with the words, it is written. But we can also use this sword for offense. Because it is this sword of the word of God that penetrates to the heart of man. That this is my confidence every Sunday when I stand to preach. My confidence is not in my own word. My confidence is in the power of this word. That it has power because of the Holy Spirit to change the heart of man. And I have confidence in that for one thing because the power of this word has changed my heart and my life. The Lord has given us these six incredible pieces of spiritual armor, which, of course, are merely metaphors for the spiritual strength and protection that we have when we walk with Christ, when we put on our new man, as Paul wrote earlier in this letter. But in addition to that, in verses 18 through 20, Paul mentions one other indispensable resource that God has provided for us, and that is very simply prayer. Look in verse 18, he writes, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer is not tied to any single one of the pieces of armor because the implication here is that without prayer, we're not going to be able to wear any of the pieces of armor. That it's through a life of prayer, it's through a life of dependency upon God in prayer that we are able to wear that armor that God has provided for us. And he emphasizes how important prayer is by using the word all four times in that one verse. And you notice that praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We need to always be in prayer because we are always in battle. And we're always in need of the Lord's power and the Lord's strength. I love how John Piper in his great book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, said that we should not think about prayer like it is an intercom where we call up from the den to the upstairs lobby and ask for more tea and crumpets to be delivered to us. But rather, Piper says, we should think about prayer as though it were a wartime walkie-talkie. Once we understand that life is war, we understand that prayer is our walkie-talkie. It's our way while we are on the battlefield to communicate back with our headquarters, to communicate with our commanding officer. And when we communicate with him, he gives us everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in this world. Friend, let me ask you, is that how you think about prayer? Is that how you have been praying? like you're in a war, like you absolutely need to connect with your headquarters every day to know what your marching orders are before you go out into the battlefield of this world. Paul certainly understood that, and that's why I love in verses 19 and 20, he asked the Ephesians who are receiving this letter to please pray for him. 
the greatest missionary who ever lived knew he needed the prayer of other saints. He knew he did not have the resources on his own to go out into that battlefield. And notice he doesn't ask for prayer to be delivered out of prison. He doesn't ask for prayer that he might not be martyred. No, he says, pray for me that while I am here as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in these chains, that even here in this prison cell, I would be bold that I would share the gospel, that I would speak as I ought to speak as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement, what an example. Paul closes this letter with a beautiful benediction in verses 23 and 24. It's really a prayer that he prays for the believers in Ephesus. He says this, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, amen. And you see four beautiful words, closing words there for every believer. Circle them in those verses. You see the word peace, the word faith, the word grace, and the word love. And those four words really summarize the entire message of the book of Ephesians, that through faith in Christ, because of the incredible grace of God that has been lavished upon us. We can have peace with God. We can have peace with others. And because God first loved us, we who are now called by his name, love the Lord Jesus Christ with a sincere and undying love. As you read that, though, I want to ask you, as you read that those that he's writing this letter to love Jesus with an undying love. Friend, do you right now love Jesus with an undying love? And if you would say no, if you would say, I I really don't know Christ in that kind of a way. I mean, I've heard about Jesus. I don't feel like I have a relationship with Jesus, but I want to have one. Friend, in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and worship together. You're invited to come, to leave your seat and speak with me or one of the other pastors here at the front and just to say, I I know that God loved me. I know he proved his love for me when Jesus died on the cross. And I want to receive that love into my life. I want to receive his forgiveness. I, I want to turn and change. And I want the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want to love him. I want to follow him. He'll show me how. And you're invited, friend, to come and receive that gift. Maybe you're here and you've already received that gift. You're already a follower of Christ. You do love the Lord with an undying love. But I don't know maybe how God has been speaking to you through this final section of the book of Ephesians today. Friend, let me just ask you, have you lately been living like it's peacetime or like it's wartime? Have you been mindful that there's a spiritual battle taking place around you and in you? Have you been fighting the wrong battle, the wrong enemy? Have you been preparing yourself every day through prayer and time with the Lord to go out into the battlefield? Or have you been going out unprepared? As Satan shoots those fiery darts, have they been bouncing off your shield of faith or have they been finding their mark in different places where there are chinks in your armor? And you've been succumbing to his temptations in various places and areas of your life. If so, the Lord calls us as believers to confess that sin to him. When we confess that sin to him, he forgives us. He cleanses us. He washes us. Makes us new. He picks us up again. 
Maybe that's where you are today. And you can come and share that, ask for prayer. Maybe you just say, like Paul, I don't know of anything major going on in my life right now, but I know this, if the apostle Paul needed prayer, I do too. And so I just wanna come and pray here. I wanna come and ask one of the pastors to pray for me because I know on my own, I can't go out into this battlefield and I need his help. Let's stand together, let's worship the Lord. But friend, if God is speaking to you, you come and you respond to what he's saying to your heart.